Now today, we are transitioning a bit from Psalm one, uh, from 1 Corinthians to Psalm chapter 139. And uh, I hope it will be an encouragement to you this summer as we do this playlist of sorts and go through some of the favorite or most voted upon selected psalms. And so today's psalm is really interesting because it's David's in-depth look at how deeply and intimately God knows him. And this week as I was listening uh, to um, The Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens on my run, the Lord sovereignly and supernaturally brought across to me um, chapter 3 entitled The Night Shadows. And this is a really interesting and poetic way of expressing the depth of humanity and the nature and mystery of the human psyche and human soul. And so I want to go ahead and read the first paragraph to you and you'll follow along and you'll see that he's using a bunch of different metaphors and analogies to express how complicated, intricate, mysterious, hidden, and interwoven we are as human beings. So listen carefully to Dickens' description and then we will transition to the psalmist's description. So first, A Tale of Two Cities, The Night Shadows, Chapter 3. Dickens says this, A wonderful fact to reflect upon, that every human creature is constituted to be that profound secret and mystery to every other. A solemn consideration when I enter a great city by night, that every one of those darkly clustered houses encloses its own secret. That every room in every one of them encloses its own secret. And every beating heart in the hundreds of thousands of breasts there is in some of its own imaginings a secret to the heart nearest it. Something of the awfulness, even of death itself, is referable to this. No more can I turn the leaves of this dear book that I loved and vainly hope in time to read it all. No more can I look into the depths of this unfathomable water wherein, as momentary lights glanced into it, I have had glimpses of buried treasure and other things submerged. It was appointed that the book should shut with a spring forever and ever, when I had read but a page. It was appointed that the water should be locked in an eternal frost, when the light was playing on its surface, and I stood in ignorance on the shore. My friend is dead, my neighbor is dead, my love, the darling of my soul, is dead. It is the inexorable consolidation and perpetuation of the secret that always in every individuality I shall carry in my own to life's end. In any of the burial places of this city which through I will pass, is there a sleeper more inscrutable than its busy inhabitants are here in their innermost personality to me or I to them? Whoa. Now let's see what the psalmist has to say. To Dickens, we are inscrutable. 
to God? Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light to you. For you formed me in my inner parts. You knitted to me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. O oh God, how precious to me are your thoughts. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they were more than the sand. I awake and am still with you. O oh God, that you would slay the wicked. O oh men of blood, depart from me. Lord, they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe against those who rise against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the everlasting. Amen. Dickens, the psalmist, two very different opinions of the depths of the human soul. And no doubt, as you've interacted with others, you have probably felt what Dickens has said. Man, this person is a mystery. I have no idea what's going on inside of them, even though they sleep next to me at night. I don't know what lies beneath. And yet the psalmist says of God completely the opposite, that he knows us better than we know ourselves. We know our thoughts and our feelings before we think them or feel them. Because of his intricate, omniscient knowledge of all things. This, by the way, is a great example of practical theology. Off the record, some people say, hey, you know, theology, that doesn't really matter. It's just about how you live. Well, guess what? How you live is driven by your theology. Look at any New Testament pastoral epistle, and what you see is that the indicative always precedes the imperative. Or in other words, the teaching always precedes the commands. 
you learn first and then you do. At least you should. And here the, the psalmist says, what is it like for God to know all things? Well, that's a really cool fact. But what does it look like now for me in my life? How do I apply the fact that God knows everything, that's omniscience, biblical theology, to me? It's practical living. That is what we'll look at today in Psalm 139, is how does the biblical theology of omniscience, or the fact that God knows everything, apply to me and my life? How does it make a difference? What's very interesting here is this, is you know, you heard my uh, start up with the decision of this week, and that got your attention, and I'm glad, and I felt that's not the thrust of the sermon, and I don't, but I also felt like I need to address it. What's interesting in this psalm is, you know, sovereignly God chose this psalm for today and the timing of the decision, and what the psalmist is doing is he's moving through this process wherein there's a lot of things going on in his culture and his society that he doesn't agree with. And he's looking around and say, whoa, God, bad stuff. Stop. Stop the wickedness, Lord. That's the end of the psalm. But meanwhile, God, in my personal relationship with you, examine me and make sure there's no wickedness in me. Because it's one thing for me to look around at everybody else and say, they're bad. But I want you to look at me and see how I'm doing. And then once we've gone through that search process, then we can interact with others. And that's the way it should work for us as well. So before we cast the first stone, let's turn the mirror around and pull out the plank before we go after the speck. Here we are in Psalm 139. And let me, while I'm in the controversy, let me just jump right in. All right, let's talk about the worship wars. What's next? Let's go worship wars, Okay. Contemporary Christian music. (laughs) Yay? Boo. Yay, boo. Yay, boo. Okay. We're not going to have a vote. I'm sorry. (laughs) What happens is this, is oftentimes in in our society when the worship wars start, and believe me, we do not want to get into that, uh, people have their opinions, right? Because you grow up with a certain genre or you haven't grown up yet and you're used to a certain genre. Everybody favors one thing and not another. Whatever. Here's the thing. Often the criticism that's, laid, uh, that's, that's thrown against contemporary Christian music. Now note too, if you check a few sermons ago, I quoted a hymn. So I'm blended, right? Okay. But here is the criticism against contemporary Christian music is people will say, well, it's I, 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 me, 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 my, 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 my relationship with God over and over and again. Me and Jesus, me, me and Jesus, me and Jesus. Jesus is my girlfriend. Love, 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 la di da di da. And you go, wow, fluffy fruit fruit that anybody could have sang and has nothing to do with the Bible. Great. You know, it could be, you know, Taylor or it could be Chris Tomlin. I don't know. But the reality is, although it is true, after we have just studied the book of 1 Corinthians, wherein it's very clear that the author looking at the church is emphasizing the we over the me or the plural over the singular or the y'all over you when God is concerned about us coming together and worshiping him as a corporate body he never ever 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 forgets the individual even though we come together and sing as one he is not forgotten about you or you 
He knows exactly who you are in every single way, even better than you do. And so the psalmist experiences this personal, intimate, intricate relationship with God. And as a result, he can't do anything but respond in worship and in awe. And that is how this will be expressed today. In other words, if you were a Hispanic congregation, you would say it like this. You would say, Oh Jehovah, tú ya sabes todo, pero todavía me has conocido. In other words, Oh God, even though you know mentally everything, that's saber, even though you have the knowledge in a very scientific way of every detail of this entire universe, every historical fact, all, all, all facts and data, all data combined, which we call FATA. <laughs> all right? Hashtag at FATA.com. All right. Good. Very good. It's a new one. Okay. It's from Dow <laughs> or Dow Corning. All right. FATA. All fata, all data, God knows, all facts, all knowledge. At the same time, me ha conocido. You still know me personally. See, Spanish has two different words for to know. It has one, saber, which is to know in an intellectual knowledge base. And also has one, conocer, which is in a relational base. Okay? And so that's what was kind of a bit of a challenge of Presenting this psalm to you is in as English speakers. We we just talk about to know saber We just know things like knowledge like math like facts like history But God has Depths of knowledge that are not only limited to intellectual data, but also personal relational mysteries So in other words where you can study the chemistry or the knowledge of chemistry there is also the chemistry of interpersonal relationships there is personal chemistry and there is the periodic table and god knows both and in this psalm what you will see is that the psalmist is overwhelmed by the fact that even though god has this incredible intellectual intellectual grasp of everything he also has this deep and interpersonal intimate relationship as well that God can both saber and conocer at the same time. So, in other words, what I'm trying to say to you is this, in a way, is basically God's love, here's a slide if you want to write it down, uh, God's love for us causes us to worship Him. God's love, slide, causes us to worship Him. <laughs> and as we worship our hearts align with his. Now, the reason I say love, even though that word is not in this psalm, is because, again, I don't know how to communicate to you this relational knowledge. If I say God's knowledge causes us to worship him, we as Western thinkers will naturally think, oh, knowledge, I get it. Because he knows everything, we think he's awesome. But actually, it is the personal knowledge, the relational knowledge, and so I am calling it, in this sense, love. God's personal relational experience with you that knows the intricate details of how you're made that knowledge that love draws us to worship him 
And as we worship, the natural result is then that our lives and our hearts align with him. That, by the way, is what we're trying to do on Sunday morning. (laughs) You know, we come here, we are drawn in by his majesty and his magnificence. We come together as one body. We begin to worship him. And as we do so, our hearts align. And as they align, then we begin to align our lives with his. And so I'm going to move us through this psalm then in three different parts. And basically in the way in which that was uh, stated, broken down, we're going to look at uh, part A, love, part B, worship, and part C, alignment. So we will see God's love for us and then our resultant worship for him. And then the final result of how that causes us to align. So, Psalm 139, this then is how we will move. And I'll spend the majority of the time on the first part, the love, the the intricate knowledge, and then that will subsequently play out in the other two. So, let's begin then in Psalm chapter 139. God's love for you. Now, the psalmist is a poet. This is David. And he's writing about God in very expressive or creative ways. So this is not like the genre we just jumped out of in 1 Corinthians, which is a Pauline letter written in a very logical style. This is instead more like an art gallery. You walk in, and instead of reading a detailed description or manifest, you see a picture. And from that picture, you deduce certain things. So the genre has completely changed. Now we're going from rhetoric and logic into um, art and aesthetics. So in this poetic fashion, the psalmist will begin with a picture which literary buffs call a merism. Now, you may say to yourself, well, what in the world's a merism? I don't care. What's a merism? Whatever. You know what a merism is. A merism is this. As far as the east is from the west... Merism. It's two opposite extremes contrasted to say everything in between. So the psalmist in their poetry, in their literature, they do this all the time. As you read through the Psalms this summer and you follow that reading list we posted online, you will see this and you'll be like, oh, merism. Oh, merism. Cool. Hey, merism. I learned that. Here we go. Here's one. From the rising of the sun to its setting. What does that mean? All day. Exactly right. The name of the Lord is to be praised. From the rising to the setting. The psalmist doesn't write, praise the Lord all day long. He shows you a picture. He draws it. He paints it. Psalm 42. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. At night, his song is with me. All the time. For as high as the heavens are above the earth. Contrast. Merism. So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. See, you don't have to have a PhD in literature to understand that. You get it naturally, but we have a term for it, and it's just called a merism. A figure of speech used to describe the two polar extremes. So, verse 1 and verse 2, with that as your background now, that you are Nobel laureates, Let us begin. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. How much? Verse 2. Well, you know, when I sit down and when I rise up. In other words, when I'm moving about throughout the day, 
and when I'm sitting down or resting at night. All the time, everywhere I go, nothing is hidden from you. Now, in our family, we have this fun routine before we go to bed at night. Um, and different children, you know, you do different things with. And one of my children says to me, Dad, tell me about your day. And what he wants is for me to go through every single little detail of my day. What did you have for breakfast? I got up, I ate breakfast, I had, you know, toast and orange juice or whatever. And you just go, da 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 He wants to know every detail. He, I think he's just extending or stalling bedtime, right? But I'm counting it as a relational connection, so here we go. So we're going through every detail. Oh, what would you do again? Did you like that? What's in? Blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden, they're really interested in me at bedtime. I don't know. But here we go through all the details. And um, sometimes my day is interesting. Otherwise, he would think it's totally boring. But what's interesting to us is that God is interested in your day, every day. Even when you're not and you think it's boring, God is interested in your day. Every single little detail, he has sovereignly saw and planned ahead of time, and he wants to know how you used that, how you stewarded it, how you worshipped him with it. How did you feel? What did you experience? What did that do for you? God cares. From when you rise up to when you sit down. Beginning to end, he wants to know every single little detail of your day. So try that with him. Nighttime, before you go to bed, hey, Heavenly Father, here's my day. First I got up and ate Lucky Charms. Okay, I know I should have had Wheaties. but And you can go through the whole day. And you can tell him about it. He knows when you sit down and rise up. Verse 2b, it says, you discern my thoughts from afar. Uh-oh. We just got beyond the Lucky Charms and Wheaties. Now he's looking into your thought life as well. Men, he knows your thoughts. Are they pure? What did you notice? How long did you look? What were you looking at? He knows your thoughts. Every single one of them as if they were played right up here on this big screen. Your thoughts. God sees them. Women? Same thing. I have no idea what they are. But God does. He knows your thoughts. Someone understands you. And if you don't feel loved, <laughs> all right, somebody does. I promise. He knows your thoughts. Even before you think them. Now that is impressive. Right? God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He knows your thoughts. He's also omnipresent. Whoa, too much theology, Pastor Jeremy. Well, look. What's it say? He knows them from afar. He doesn't have to get up close to you and say, hey, what were you thinking? He knows them from afar, from a great distance. This is really illustrated, really cool in the New Testament in John chapter 4 when Jesus heals an official's son. And the official comes to Jesus. He knows that Jesus is doing all this cool stuff. And he's like, whoa, my boy is sick. Please come. And Jesus is like, yeah, boy, these sinful people, they just need a sign. They want to show. And he's like, no, 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 Lord, if you would just speak the word, he could be healed. 
Jesus says, I have not seen faith like that since I don't know when. He's healed. Guy goes back home. Before, before he even gets there, servant comes running up. Okay, guess what? What? He's healed. He didn't even come. Now, shouldn't the healer come and put his hand on him and anoint him with oil? Or do some sort of, you know, prayer or, or, or medicine or something? No. He doesn't even have to be there. He does it from afar. Why? Because he is there. Jesus is everywhere. He's omnipresent even when he's on earth. Woo. How about that? Jesus is omnipresent even when he's on earth. He heals from afar. He doesn't have to be there to heal. He can just say, hey, other side of the world, be healed. I'm there. He is one with God the Father. He is one with the Spirit. The Spirit is omnipresent at all times. Therefore, Jesus is omnipresent at all times. He, he discerns your thoughts from afar. Pretty cool? Here we go. Let's go further. Verse 3 says, You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted, see, path and lying down, with all my ways. There's another merism for you. Path in a culture that is controlled predominantly by the transportation method of walking. Then the path is everywhere you go. And then when you lie down at night. Merism. And then look what it says. All my ways. All my ways. This is going to come back in the last verse. I'm not going to tell you what that is now. But it will come back. My ways. Verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Now, if that doesn't scare you, I don't know what does. Because a good man (laughs) can control his tongue. But who can control the words that aren't said? You know? I mean, every single word, every single thought, even the phrases and words that you left unsaid, God knows. And there they are. Every step, every rising up, every laying down, every thought, every word, both said and unsaid, all of that, God knows. As if it were shot up on the screen for everybody here this morning to see. Would you be proud of that? Would you be proud of that this morning? Last night, this weekend, at work, today, would you be proud? Do you want every single person in this room to know every one of your thoughts? Every one of your words? Your feelings? Do you want them to know that? God knows. In no uncertain terms, He knows you in every intricate way. That is why the psalmist in verse 6 responds like this. He says, whoa, such knowledge is way too wonderful for me. It's so high I cannot attain it. And he's feeling a bit overwhelmed just like we are. He's like, I'm in trouble. Verse 7, where shall I go? Where can I flee from your spirit, from the omnipresent spirit of the Most High God? You know, for it's Baal or it's Astra, or one of these other pagan deities, I can get away because they're only God in Moab. But this God, he's God everywhere. Where can I go? Here's some more. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I go down to Sheol, you're there. 
Wings in the morning, you're there. The sea, you're there. Everywhere I go, I can't get away. Your hand will find me. Surely not even darkness is darkness to you. And he's afraid. Because God knows his thoughts. God knows his feelings. God knows his heart. He might be a poet and a king by day, but he is a sinner by night. The Lord knows. Some of you see me in the pulpit on Sunday morning, you think, maybe this guy's perfect because he just stands up there and tells us all the good things to do. (laughs) Don't talk to my wife. (laughs) I'm not perfect. I'm just a guy. I'm your pastor, and the Lord has equipped me with a certain gift to communicate his truth. Well, great. You've got gifts, too. Here we are, but none of us are perfect. And here we stand. And if you really know me and if I really know you, <laughs> wow, right? <laughs> but the Lord does, and he does. And it's crazy, and it scares us. And in fact, that's the right feeling, because in our daily experience, that's the way things go. Because if people know us, they can sometimes use that against us, right? And it starts early, too. Like in elementary school, little kids, they find out something about you, and they're making fun of you. School's not all that fun. It's a jungle out there. It's a nightmare. Kids abuse each other all the time. There's bullying, all kinds of crazy stuff. And we say we learn to cope. We learn to hide. We learn to put up walls. We learn to be careful about what we reveal because we know if we reveal too much, they could use it against me. Because why? Well, that person may not struggle with that. They may not understand. God wired them differently. They're totally cool with that, and they can do it, and I can't, and I look funny to them just because of it. And they might mention that, and that's going to hurt my feelings and make me feel bad. And so we hide, because we're afraid of full disclosure. Now, all of a sudden, we hear that God knows everything. Everything is fully disclosed to him. What do we want to do? Run, man, hide. (laughs) This is scary, because I know what people do with that. What is God going to do? People aren't even perfect, but God, he's perfect. If he knew all of that, it would be even worse, right? Jeremiah chapter 23 rubs it in a little further. It says, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heaven and earth? Go ahead, Jonah, run. See how that goes for you. Adam and Eve, try. You can hide. Not really. You can't hide. Ananias and Sapphira, you think you can get away with it? Try to conceal it from God. See how it goes. Not a good idea. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You cannot run. You cannot hide. And you cannot conceal. It is all known to God. We're dead meat, right? We are in big trouble. Psalm 133 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Just in a previous psalm right before this. If, if you counted all these things, God, who could stand? Verse Psalm 136, three psalms before this. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
Verse 4, Psalm 130. But with you, O God, there is forgiveness. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. With you, O God, there is forgiveness. The psalmist begins to realize this in part through his knowledge and understanding of the nature of God. Now know that he's in a very different spot than we are. He's just trusting in the prophecies and promises. He doesn't have the fulfillment. There's no Jesus yet. And yet he knows by the very nature and character of God from the fact that he has not been obliterated at this point that God is faithful and true. He knows that there is forgiveness and so he has hope. And the New Testament is the fulfillment of of that hope and as a result Ephesians tells us in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us for neither height now this sounds like Psalm 136 nor depth nor anything else merism in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord even though God knows every single one of your stinking little sins. He still loves you. Everyone. He knows. And you cannot get away from him. No matter how hard you run. He knows. And yet, he still loves you. Do you believe that? Aunque tú sabes todo, todavía me has conocido. Even though you know it all, you still know me. This is the message of Psalm 139. Even though God knows all fata, you know me. You still know me. And you love me. I think there's even a contemporary and ancient Christian tune which expresses this. The redone version is by Chris Tomlin. It's called Jesus Loves Me. In it, he writes these words. He says, I was lost. I was in chains. The world had a hold of me. My heart was a stone. I was covered in shame when he came for me. Now listen to this. Here's the psalm. I couldn't run. I could not run from his presence. As Scott said this morning, I couldn't run. I couldn't run from his arms. Jesus loves me. He loves me. There was a fire deep in my soul. I will never be the same. Stepped out of the dark and into the light. Even darkness is not dark to you. When he called my name. I couldn't run. I couldn't run from his presence. He holds the stars, saber, and he holds my heart, conocer. With healing hands, he bears the scars. The cross where he died. God's kindness leads us to repentance. Romans. When you love him, when you experience his personal relationship, when you know this, you want to be with him. 
You become one with him, and then you begin to share in his thoughts. You begin to share in his feelings, and it is truly a match made in heaven. It is a real relationship that truly understands. You want to become one with him. And that is what is happening then in verses 17 through 22. We look at those verses and we go, whoa, he just used the hate word. I thought that was a bad word right now, right? But what happens is this, is that love, when you experience God's love, you begin to worship him. You say, wow, even though he knows all that, he still loves me. Such knowledge is wonderful for me. And you respond and worship. And then when you worship, your heart begins to align. And the psalmist's heart now has aligned with God, and the psalmist is beginning to share God's feelings. And so we come to a point in this psalm where God hates evil, and the psalmist whose heart has aligned with God's, now guess what? He hates evil too. God is repulsed by wickedness, and the psalmist, he too is repulsed by wickedness. God says evil must be separated from him, and so the psalmist says evil should separate from me as well. Why? Because they're becoming one. They're becoming united. They're coming together. And therefore, the psalmist doesn't want to do anything that's going to draw him away from God. So wicked men separate from me. What you love, I hate. I love evil, or sorry, I I hate evil and love good. That is God's nature. And that is the psalmist expressing his solidarity with God. It is a loyalty thing. This is not hate-mongering or an old-fashioned prehistoric God gone mad. This is simply the reality that true justice and righteousness must reign. And for it to do so, wickedness must be done away with. Now we who are Christians in the New Testament, we are so thankful to see this play out in the life of the psalmist. But we look forward to the fulfillment in our lives as well. So we look at our society and we say, whoa, we feel like the psalmist. Man, (laughs) wickedness is coming in. Lord, let our hearts be aligned with you. And as we do so, yes, it is right for you to be bothered by things that are going on around you. I had one person say to me, man, that just drives me crazy. He's like, maybe I'm sinful for doing so. And I said, no, actually it should bother you. And if it didn't bother you, then that's a problem. It's actually good that you were bothered by injustice. It is good that you were bothered by starvation. It is good that you were bothered by disease. It is good that you were bothered by death. It is good that you were bothered by the, you know, incredible sexuality and greed portrayed in our culture. It is good that that bothers you. That means your heart is aligning with God's. And it bothers Him. And He will obliterate it. And that is why we so, so desperately long for the return of Jesus Christ. When all things are made right and all things are made new, then there is a vindication. And the psalmist is praying for that here. He's like, vindicate me, O God. Come back. Fix this thing. Lord, don't I align with you? Examine me. Check it out. See if it's true. God, come back. And you can cry the same thing too. In full honesty and integrity, once you've gone through that search process, you say, Lord, you examine me. If you point out a sin, I'll confess it. But once you do, you know my intent. You know my heart. The psalmist is saying, yeah, I'm not perfect. 
Lord, you know that. Man, do you know that. You know my thoughts. You know my rising up and going down. I'm not pretending to be perfect here. I'm just saying, Lord, you know my heart. You know my intent. And even though I don't always get it right, I'm trusting that once you search and examine, I confess and you forgive, and you'll see we're on the same team. And Lord, there are a lot of people here who aren't. So please help. Please help. So here we are. Love, God's love, leads to our worship. And as we worship, then our hearts align with His. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And after you've done that, then what happens? Lead me in the way of the everlasting. Now, here's that word I told you would come back at the very end of the sermon, the way. Seems like a small word. But actually, as you follow that word, it occurs way over 800 times throughout the Bible. And it's a significant theme. You watch it develop in the Old Testament, and you have God leading Moses along the way, through the wilderness, into the promised land. You see God raising up the messianic line and leading them into the fulfillment of his promises. You see God coming to the prophets and calling out to the people to return to the way of the Lord. And then you see the the writer of Proverbs saying, look, there's two different ways. There's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Which one are you going to go? And then you come to the New Testament and all of a sudden there's this guy named Jesus and guess what he says? I am the way. And it is fulfilled. And then he calls some people to follow him and he dies. And he's buried. And God raises him from the dead. And he ascends to glory. And those people who followed him, guess what they're called? The way. Even before they're called the church. The way. Theological, progressive, revelation, development, God's intentional historical plan carried throughout the ages. And there it is. There's always been a way. And there's only one. And his name is Jesus. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way of the everlasting. One more guy gets it right from contemporary music. Here's his name, Big Daddy Weave. He sings this song, which I think sums up the psalm well. It's called Overwhelmed. This is his response to God's revelation to him. He says, hey, I see the work of your hands. I am the work of your hands, right? You formed me. You knitted me together in my mother's womb, Psalm 139. There it is in the contemporary music. I see the work of your songs, your hands. Galaxies spin in heavenly dance, O God. And all that you are is so overwhelming. I hear the sound of your voice and all at once it's a gentle and thundering noise. Oh God, you are so overwhelming. Now here's the whole point of life wrapped up in one tiny little phrase. I delight myself in you. What is the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Captivated by your beauty, Lord, your love draws me in. I am overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed by you. God, I run into your arms, unashamed because of mercy. If there were no mercy, whoa. 
but I'm unashamed, overwhelmed by you. I know the power of the cross. Forgiven and free forever you'll be, my God. All that you are is so overwhelming. I delight myself in you. In the glory of your presence, I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed by you. God, you are beautiful, you're beautiful. You're wonderful, you're wonderful. You're glorious, you're glorious. God, we are overwhelmed by you. God, we thank you for your love for us. As a church at Midland Free, as a people, and even as individuals. They don't know me. You do. I don't know them. You do. If Dickens were all there were, we would live this life in misery, mysteries to one another. But God, you know. You know our deepest thoughts, our deepest feelings, our deepest emotions, our deepest fears. And you deal with every single one of them in one fatal stroke. In the swift and miraculous death and resurrection of your son. We thank you and praise you for it. And we pray that you would lead us in the way of the everlasting.